Welcome to episode 164 of This Week in Linux, recorded, not live, on August 14th, 2021. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. This week's episode is going to be a little bit different because, as you can tell, I'm not in the usual location that I typically am in. I'm traveling this week. I'm at Ryan's house. He's the co-host with me on Destination Linux on podcast, and we are going to be doing a lot of great content together while I'm here. So we have new videos coming out. We're going to be doing some live streams together, all sorts of stuff. So be sure to check those out. But this episode is a little bit different because I'm really trying to test to see whether or not I can do my show mobile. I'm going to take all of my OBS scenes and have everything ready to go in the show to see if that's possible. And we have now found out, no, it's that much more difficult than I anticipated. I'm still doing the show, but uh, we're going to have to do some pivots here and there to make it work. On this week's episode, we are just stacked with news. We have Elementary OS 6. We also have Debian 11 Bullseye. SDL's latest release, we're going to talk about that and why it's important. Also, DXVK's native uh, package gets an official release. KDE Gear 21.08 has been released. We also got some Mozilla stuff like Thunderbird 91. And so much more coming up on this week's episode of Twill, your weekly source for Linux good news. This episode of Twill is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. Before we get into the show this week, I have two exciting announcements to let you know about. First of all, Pine64 is going to be on the next episode of Destination Linux. So join us for DL239 because Pine64 is going to have an exclusive interview with us to announce a new exciting product to their lineup. And you won't want to miss it this week because it is so, so cool. I can't wait to tell you about it. I have to wait until tomorrow, but I want to, but I'm going to. So join us tomorrow, Sunday, August 15th at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time or 1700 UTC at dealinglive.com to find out what awesome product is coming, the lineup for Pine64. The next announcement I have for you is the DLN MegaFest. So next week is our first ever DLN MegaFest. The fun begins at 1 p.m. Eastern Time for the recording of Destination Linux podcast. And then right after that, at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, or 1900 UTC, we're going to be celebrating the 30 years of Linux with the first DLN MegaFest. So <laughs> here are some things we're going to be covering at the MegaFest. So we're going to be doing multiple giveaways for Steam games and that sort of thing. So in order, in order to enter, all you got to do is go to Discourse Forum right now. Just link below in the description, also link in the show notes, and just reply to the giveaway thread. And we simply tell us why you love Linux, and, you know, that's it. You're entered. All you got to do is reply to that thread, let us know why you love Linux, and you're entered into the giveaways for the Steam games. Then we'll have a live hangout where everyone is invited to join us. We'll also have a link in on the DLN forum, so be sure to get an account on the forum if you don't have one. I mean, you don't need an account in order to have a to be get the link to join us for the hangout but you will need an account in order to reply to get a be a part of the giveaway and definitely you'll want to have an account anyway because it's a it's a great forum so check it out also later in the event for the deal in mega fest we're going to be doing a game fest and we're going to be playing a multiple games we're going to be playing hedge wars zoonotic among us and everybody's welcome to join i mean there's going to be depending on the game there's going to be a limited amount of people who can join different rounds and stuff like that but we're going to try to uh, rotate 
rounds and stuff like that. But if you want to join us for the DLN MegaFest, be sure to mark your calendars for August 22nd. That is next Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern time for the MegaFest and 1 p.m. Eastern for the recording of Destination Linux. But first in the show this week, the elementary team have announced the release of Elementary OS 6. For this release, they say the team was focused on empowering you to be in control and express yourself, continuing to innovate with new features, and making Elementary OS easier to get and more inclusive. They also say it's the biggest update to the platform yet. It's based on Ubuntu 2004 LTS and has a Linux kernel of 5.11. Now, there are a lot of features in this particular release. They, as they said, it's the biggest update to the platform yet, so we're not going to be able to cover everything, but we will be covering some of the highlights because there are a lot of cool stuff that I want to talk about, but can't fit it all in, so as many as I can, I will try to fit in. The first highlight I want to talk about is Elementary OS 6.0 has added a new dark mode. This is awesome because a dark mode is a preference to a lot of people, including myself. And some people want to have a dark mode because for longer computing periods, they actually, like, you know, their, their eyes kind of get fatigued or they get a headache and stuff like that for light themed applications. So a dark mode being added is very, very welcomed for me and a lot of other people. But it is also worth noting that not all applications will have support for the dark mode because with third party applications, you don't know if it's going to work or not based on you know the configuration of the technology of the applications. You could force it technically, but you don't really want to because if you do, there could be artifacting that would create it where the point where it would be even worse to use the application. So it makes sense they wouldn't want to force it. But all applications that are made by elementary as well as all the curated apps in App Center have support for dark mode. The next thing I want to talk about is the multi-touch gestures that have been added. Now they have done some cool stuff with this, but I want to talk about the things that I would use the most, and that is the ability to switch to the multitasking view and to switch between workspaces with the multi-touch gestures. Now this works on your touchpad or also on a touchscreen. Use three fingers to swipe up to open the multitasking view, and you that be able to use different windows and easily switch between windows. And also three finger swipe left or right to switch between the different workspaces, which is really nice for people who use their multi, like virtual desktops or workspaces to you know have their notes on one app on one workspace and their uh, production stuff on another workspace and that sort of thing. Like for my example, it'd be like having OBS on one workspace and having my notes on another one, that sort of stuff. It's very nice to have this kind of feature. So I'm really happy to see Elementary OS 6 getting it. Next big highlight I want to talk about is that the App Center is now all about flat packs. That's right. All the curated apps in the store are now packaged as Flatpak apps for a variety of reasons. I am super excited to see that. And not only that, it's really cool that they're doing Flatpaks as a default approach because I like Flatpaks as a format. I like the universal apps uh, concept. So it's really cool to see that. But they're even going beyond that and making it possible to manage each the application permissions on a per app basis inside of the system settings of Elementary OS 6, which is very, very cool. That means you can customize how much permissions the each flat pack gets. You know, there's a default that they all get, you know, that they that each flat pack builds in what kind of permissions they feel like they want. But if you don't agree with that, you can go in and change the permissions of whatever flat pack you want to. That's awesome. So I'm really happy to see that they have integrated that into the, the OS itself, in addition to just adding flat packs. So very, very cool. Well done there. Now it is worth noting that the Flathub is not enabled out of the box by default. You can still use the Flatpak from Flathub by doing side loads, and you can do that for the non the non App Center installs. 
Uh, so that's very cool. You can still use the Flat Hub, but it's not there by default because they use their curated store of repo of flat packs instead. Uh, but it is worth noting that it is still accessible if you would like to use the Flat Hub. In addition to all of that, they've also revamped the notifications experience, added support for firmware updates via LVFS, FWUPD, or Fwuptida. They've rewritten the email client. They've improved the camera application as well as enhanced the installer and many, many more things. But there are a couple things that I do want to talk about in a little bit more detail. So they've added a new task application, which is also compatible with CalDev providers or calendar providers, which is really awesome because especially with the ability to have Cal the CalDev support makes it where you can have syncing of your calendar with your to-dos, which is really, really important. And I'm really happy to see them do that for productivity. I've tried tons and tons of productivity apps for to-do apps and task lists and all sorts of stuff. I'm still looking for the perfect option. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely gonna be checking this out. And I really like the fact that they have the flat pack version. So that's cool. Uh, there's also something else I wanna talk about and that is the changes to the files file manager. The changes to the file manager are related to the single click versus double click topic on whether or not you should use double click or single click to navigate through folders or at launch applications and you know activate files and that sort of stuff. And they've decided to take a hybrid approach which I think is rather interesting. So some people prefer single click versus double click. Now double click is the common usage uh, because Windows does that by default. They tried it a long time ago to switch to single click, but that didn't work out, so they, they kept double. And some people argue that the double click is the better option by default because it eliminates the accidental launching of applications through clicking on files and that sort of stuff. Others think that single click is better because it's faster and more convenient and more productive when you only have to click once than set of twice. And that's, you know, it's debatable which one is the better option. I prefer the double click argument because it's easier. It's, it, it should be easier for the beginner to try out something and not have any barriers to entry. And that's why I feel double click is the better default. But the way elementary is doing it is quite interesting because they're doing a hybrid of single click on folders and double click to activate files. Now, I think this is interesting because when you single click on a folder, it all it would do is navigate into that folder. And if you didn't want to go into it, you could just click back on the, the file manager or click backspace on your keyboard and be able to go back to the folder. So you're not really, you're not accidentally activating windows or getting annoyed by things popping up in your face. It might be a little bit awkward for some, but it's not going to be a huge deal. Whereas if it was a single click on the files activation, you'd have people complaining about windows popping up all the time and that sort of stuff. So they have a double click on the, in, the files inside of the folders to avoid the accidental launching of applications. I think this is very interesting. There are some people who have talked about this on blog posts saying that it's kind of odd, but in my opinion, I think this is a very good uh, compromise to offer single click productivity and efficiency while also not creating any kind of a barrier to entry for beginners switching from Windows or Mac and that sort of stuff. So it's a very cool idea. Now there's a lot more stuff in this latest release of Elementary OS 6. We're not gonna have, we don't have time to cover everything. So if you'd like to check out more, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have the latest release of Debian. That's right, Debian 11 Bullseye is out for, actually it's due for release today. It's not technically out at the time of recording, but it should be out sometime soon today. So I wanted to cover it on the show. And some of the highlights for Debian 11 are, well, to be clear, Debian makes changes makes all the time, but they make updates once every couple of years. So there are a lot of changes in between 
because they typically do it on a you know development style branch when they're working on making the changes. There's a lot of changes in the latest version of Debian. So for example, there's 11,000 new packages making it the total archive to contain more than 59,000 packages. So that's a lot. Also, they've updated the Linux kernel to 5.10 LTS, which adds support for many things, including XFAT file system support, thanks to this kernel. Another change is that they now use YesScript password hashing by default, as well as they made other updates to the different tooling. For example, GCC 10.2 is now the default compiler, which it was a GCC 8.3. Now LLVM Clang 11.0 is the default rather than 7.0 and many, many other updates. Also driverless uh, printing is now available in Debian through USB devices for via, via the IPP-USB package, which is really cool. And if you'd like to learn more about this release for Debian 11, you'll find links to the release notes in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new managed MongoDB service, which is a fully managed database as a service, or DBoss, as I like to call it. With managed MongoDB, you can focus more on building scalable, high-performance applications and less on maintaining the database. You simply offload your MongoDB administration to DigitalOcean and let them handle basically everything. You got provisioning, managing, scaling, updates, backups, and security of your clusters. DigitalOcean built this service in partnership with MongoDB, and together they have ensured that you will get access to all of the latest releases of MongoDB's document database as they become available. As a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash dln dash mongo. Again, that's do.co slash dln dash mongo or dln-mongo. Be sure to check it out to get that $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new managed MongoDB. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring another episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about SDL, or the Simple Direct Media Layer. This is a cross-platform development library designed to provide low-level access to audio, keyboard, mouse, joystick, and graphics hardware via OpenGPL and Direct3D. It is used by video playback software, emulators, and also many popular games on like the Valve Steam catalog and stuff like that. It also has a big release that was out this week with version 2.0.16. Now that version number might not imply that it's a big release, but it is a very big release. Now this also, this software powers a lot of games and game engines and many, many more things. So it's a very, very important project. It actually makes it where even audio from other, from like Proton type games will are used to pass it to SDL in order to play the audio from those games. Now they have, depending on the game, they might use Vulkan or something else for the graphics part, but pretty much every game in some way is using SDL. That's why it's a very important project. In version 2.0.16, there is a lot of new things. They've added the ability to get a preferred audio format for a device. They've added ability to be able to send custom triggered effects to the DualSense controller, also getting sensor data rate from PlayStation controllers and Nintendo Switch controllers. They've added support for Amazon's Luna game controller, as well as Rumble support for Google Stadia's controller and Nintendo Switch Pro controllers. Now, this is just the general stuff. That's not Linux specific because I, I didn't mention that, but it also works on Windows and Mac OS as a library. So that's really cool that it has that, uh, you know, far-reaching support. 
But, you know, we only care about the Linux parts, of course. So the Linux-specific things in SDL 2.0.16 is that it has greatly improved Wayland support, which is awesome. They've added the ability to control whether Pulse audio recording, recordings should include monitor devices or just direct input. They've also added support for audio output and capture using Pipewire, which is awesome. I'm a big fan of Pipewire. Ever since I switched to Fedora and they added it by default, there's a lot of cool things you can do with like pro audio stuff with like Carla and Cadence and QJack control and stuff like that inside of Pipewire. It's really, really cool. Not all distros have great support for Pipewire, but the ones that do, it's fantastic. So I'm really happy to see SDL adding support for audio output and capture inside of Pipewire. That's just awesome. There's also so, so much more that we don't really have time to get, in talk, to get into in depth with, but I just wanted to say that I think SDL, in my opinion, is an incredibly important library for the Linux ecosystem. I don't think it gets a lot of recognition that it deserves. So that's why I decided to feature it on this week's episode. So I just want to thank you so much for all the awesome hard work that you're doing to work on SDL. I mean, the developers of SDL, thank you so much for it. It's fantastic. And also, if you'd like to learn more about SDL 2.0.16 or just SDL in general, then you'll find links in the show notes. Up next in the show is DXVK Native gets an official first inaugural release. So for developers who want to use, be able to make native games for Linux, there's been some you know, different ways to go about doing that. But DXVK Native is an interesting option that could even reduce the time it takes to create at these games and also the complexity involved in porting games, for example. And this is made, this is made by Joshua Ashton, who has been involved in DXVK, VKD3D Proton, uh, make also working on val some Valve games and a lot more stuff. So there's a lot of great uh, work done by this developer. And so thank you very much for doing that. But this is really interesting because DXVK is kind of taking something that was, you know, sort of focused on Proton, but not really, but kind of making it possible to uh, be able to be a native runtime as well, or native library as well to use for porting games to Linux and for these games to be native Linux, not just running through Proton, which is very, very cool. So the idea is that developer was, developers would use DXVK native to get their Vulkan support of their Linux builds of the games for, you know, basically not having to do all of the work that needs to be doing a port if they're going to do a full port. Because if they're building it for like a whole new graphics API, it means the port's going to take a lot longer and take way more, way more effort than using something like this. So having a native version of DXVK makes it a lot easier to do that and not actually having to work with using a Wine compatibility layer in order to have the game be ported, which is very, very cool. You may be wondering how this all works. Well, I was too, so I went to their GitHub repo and it says in their readme file that DXVK native replaces certain Windows-isms with a platform and framework agnostic replacement. For example, HWNDs can become SDL underscore Windows and other things like that. All it takes to do that is to add another WSI backend. Well, DXVK comes with a slim set of Windows headers definitions required for D3D9 and D3D11, which is Direct3D9 and Direct3D11, as well as MinGW headers for Direct3D9 and Direct3D11. And in most cases, it will end up being plug and play with your renderer. There are some issues that they may have to work on for the ports, but for the most part, for the most part, it is plug and play, which is great. DSVK Native also has support for a lot of things. For example, 
Beacon Disable Float emulation. You can also uh, do some uh, validation for it, as well as has some performance tweaks for D3, D9. Now, what's interesting is that this has already been used by other by games. You know, basically uh, Portal 2 and Left 4 Dead both got upgrades earlier this year that added in support for DXVK native. So Portal 2, Left 4 Dead 2, also uh, Parameter, I think that's how you say it, is also available for using this. And there's other games as well. And I think this is very interesting because, you know, having these games having native support through Vulkan, through this DXVK, makes it so that the developers don't have to put in all of the effort they normally would have to do to make a native game so they can reuse some of the stuff they've already done, which makes it easier and faster and more efficient for games to be native on Linux, which is awesome. Some people were worried that Proton was going to make it so game developers don't have to worry about making native support. They could just use this compatibility layer to compensate and then they wouldn't bother to do that. And that's probably true for some developers, but it's really cool to see something like this, DXVK native, which makes the opposite true, making it easier to make native games. So that's fantastic. If you'd like to check out DXVK native on GitHub, I'll have a link in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of KDE Gear 21.08. For those who are not familiar, the KDE Gear is the new name for the KDE application suite. This is the open source software suite made by the KDE project. Now, there's a lot of great applications in here. We got Dolphin and Kden Live and so many, many more. Uh, we're going to talk about a few of these things in more details. We're going to highlight some things and that sort of stuff. But for KDE Gear 21.08, there is a plethora of improvements to the various applications. And, you know, we're going to start off with Dolphin File Manager. They've added animated previews, previews for files inside of encrypted locations, which is really interesting and pretty cool that they can do that. Plus, also, the, uh, they've added uh, automatic and real-time update for the file info presented inside of the informational panel inside of Dolphin, which is really nice. Also, Dolphin's new hamburger menu now makes everything easier to access because it's all in one location. We talked about the K, the K hamburger menu in a previous episode of Twill. I'll have that linked in the show notes for you to learn more about that. But let's move on to the next application. Up next is Ocular. Ocular is the fantastic document viewer application from KDE. It now makes it easier to customize the toolbar, lets you disable the big notification messages that are like embedded files and forms and signatures and that stuff that pop up when you're opening a document. Some people don't like those to pop up, so you can disable those if you want to as well as being able to disable or enable annotation tools if you want. Up next is Console. Console is the terminal emulator for KDE, and it comes with this latest version getting support for SSH or Secure Shell plugin by default that helps you create a directory of machines you can regularly connect to via SSH protocol. This is fantastic because a lot of people, now you can create aliases to solve this kind of thing, but it makes it really nice and convenient to have it by default, so very cool. Up next, we got GwynView, which is the image viewer. It now features new compact controls, and you can also have full support for the K hamburger menu, which is nice. It supports uh, full 16-bit colors now. Uh, also, the ability to read color profile information from JPEG, PNG, and many other image formats. Then we're going to jump over to the text editor for, for KDE, which is Kate. Now, this is a fantastic new feature. It's called Snippets, and it acts as like a... It, like some bits of code that are more of like templates that you can easily drop into your projects very quickly. And it's something I use for a long time in the and other editors that I've used. So it's really nice to see Kate have it as well. Now, there are a lot more tools and applications that are in this suite updates, like the Arc Archiver has been updated. You also got updates for Elisa Music Player and many more. 
There's a couple more I want to talk about. For example, Spectacle Screenshot Utility now has improvements as well. We have new shortcuts that you can do for being able to uh, quickly make a shortcut or make a screenshot of a window that is currently under the mouse cursor, which is really nice and convenient. Also, they have a lot better support for Wayland, which is very nice. And the next thing I want to talk about is one of my favorite applications just in all of Linux, and that is Kden Live because it is an open source video editor that I've used for years, and it has always been just a great example of what open source can be. So the Kden Live team, uh, thank you so much for making the video editor that I use to make this episode and every other episode of Twill. <laughs> so there's a lot of cool stuff making it like, for example, easier to change the speed of a clip using a key frameable effect. And it also makes it faster to open projects and import files as well. There's a lot more to cover. I might even do like a specific thing for Kden Live because actually I'm going to be doing a Kden Live series on this channel. So be sure to subscribe if you learn more about Kden Live. I'm going to go from like beginner's guide to advanced techniques, all sorts of stuff. I'm a big fan of KDE and a big fan of Kden Live. So if you want to check that out, be sure to subscribe. You'll check out the rest of what's happening in KDE gear. 21.08. Then check the links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is a password manager which gives you peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, Bitwarden provides many tools for you to do this. You can have automatically generating passwords, also storing those passwords in a secured vault and even automatically filling in passwords on login forms so you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Plus, it has support on multiple different types of devices, for example, mobile apps, desktop applications, browser extensions, and even on the command line if you're so inclined. Also, Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end -end encryption before it ever leaves your devices so you know the only person who has access to your data. Also, so go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started. And did I mention you can get it for free? Because you can. But I also want you to check out the premium accounts because there's a lot of great features in there. And it starts at less than a dollar per month. That's right. Less than a dollar per month gets you one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, and so much more. You get all of this for less than one dollar per month. That's right. So make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started with your account on Bitwarden. Get your passwords, you know, get peace of mind knowing that your, your online accounts are secure with Bitwarden. Thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Next in the show, we got Thunderbird 91 is now available. This is the first major release in about a year or so. And this is a big release. There's a lot of new changes and a lot of great changes. For example, the importing and export support for Thunderbird profiles, which will be very welcomed by many, many people, including myself as well as a lot of other things like various user, face, uh, user interface improvements, improved Gmail account integration, improved calendar settings, and bug fixes and small improvements, that sort of stuff as well, and many, many more. There's some improvements to the UI for reading email, composing email, and variety of different things. They've also added support for PDF.js viewer, so you can view PDFs directly in Thunderbird. There's also beta level support for matrix servers, which is really interesting, and they've added support to use by default Gecko's E10S multi-process mode, which is very cool because basically it means that the email can be in one process and then other features could be in another process like the calendar and variety of other things. And this makes it possible to have 
better stability by isolating these different processes. And also using this new multi-process thing, you can basically have better performance, which is always fantastic. And plus there's a new, cha new changes and a new look and improvements to the setup wizard for new accounts, which is great. If you'd like to learn more about Thunderbird, I'll have links in the show notes. I've actually been using Mailspring and Thunderbird, you know, back and forth for quite a while. I haven't decided, like, there's things I like about Mailspring. There's things about Thunderbird I like. And I've been waiting for the next version of, 20, of 91 to come out, so I can't wait to try it out. And if you, you want to try it out yourself too, links in the show notes. The next Mozilla topic I wanted to talk about is Mozilla's Common Voice, because this is a really interesting technology. We've talked about it on previous episodes of the show, but I wanted to talk about it because they've added a lot of new stuff. They've added 16 new languages for this common voice technology and over 4,600 new hours of speech data, bringing the total of 76 languages supported and almost 14,000 hours of the data. So what is the Mozilla's common voice? Well, common voice is an open source initiative to make voice technology more inclusive. What that means is, is more about the, like an assistant like Mycroft, for example, being able to use a Mozilla's common voice and being better for different languages and different accents of languages. So contributors can donate speech data to a public data set, which anyone can then use to train voice-enabled technology. So uh, Hilary Juma, the Common Voice Community Manager, says, by giving individuals the ability to share their speech, we can help ensure all communities have access to voice technology and the oppor opportunity it unlocks. Now, most of these kinds of technologies from the likes of Apple, Amazon, Google, that kind of stuff, support only a limited amount of languages, and in some cases, they fail based on the accents of a language. So Mozilla's Common Voice is meant to address this by allowing anyone to submit speech data to teach the technology how to understand various languages and accents, and this tech can be used in essentially any type of voice-related product or assistant product, but for me, the most interesting potential is things like integration with the private and open-source assistant called Mycroft and that sort of stuff. And if you'd like to learn more about Common Voice from Mozilla, or perhaps contribute to Common Voice, then you'll find links in the show notes. Up next in the show is Polychromatic. This is an application for being able to manage your Razer hardware. So if you have some Razer hardware, you might want to be checking out this application. Now, there's been a lot of changes to this release. For This is basically the first stable release in three years. So a lot has changed. And in fact, they've changed the interface completely. So they've dropped the WebKit GTK in favor of PyQt5. They say that this means it's, a no, it's no longer a hybrid web app and now functions as a traditional desktop application, which is always great to see. I mean, I like web apps in some cases, but I prefer to have traditional desktop applications. So that's fantastic. Also, they've redesigned it, which I think it looks great. And also they have some changes in like the, the preferences dialogue, like heavy changes and customizations but I think there's a lot of cool stuff that are for functionality stuff as, as in adding new DPI controls, being able to uh, independently control the X and Y axis, being able to add custom DPI stages. They have added keyboard, sh keyboard shortcuts. They've also uh, created new static and animated effects where you actually you can create your own of these because if you have a device that is capable of doing individually addressable LEDs, you can build out your own effects inside of the new polychromatic, which is awesome. They added support for multi-zone hardware, added support for ba battery status, uh, sleep mode, sleep and power modes. They've also done something that I think is the most interesting for this latest release, is that they no longer have OpenRazor as the hard dependency. And that doesn't mean that they're dropping support for OpenRazor, it just means that they are ba basically gonna work on adding more backends. So for example, 
They want to be able to add open RGB so they can support more than just Razer, as well as like few for Philips Hue support and maybe even some others, making it more like a vendor agnostic approach than just having Razer device support, which is fantastic. I don't have Razer devices, but I actually don't know if I have any devices that is supported by applications. I haven't looked, honestly, but I do want to change the colors of my devices, though I haven't tried. So it doesn't seem like a priority for me. But if it was easy, like Polychromatic looks like it is, then I would definitely check it out. But if you have Razer hardware, then you don't have to wait. You can check the links in the show notes. Up next in the show is Ardor 6.9 has been released. Ardor is an open source and cross-platform digital audio workstation, or DAW. Uh, Ardor 6.9 introduces a all-new plugin manager that shows the users a full list of plugins available on the system, along with data about each one. This also lets you, you sort and filter the plugins by brand, format, name, tag, and it allows you to choose the format that's best for each plugin. This plugin manager also comes with a new standalone scanner applications for AU and VST format plugins, capable of scanning your entire plugin library for you. And it also has support for LV2 plugins with multiple Atom ports, such as the Fro, the SFIZ sample-based musical synthesizer, and its SVZ instrument format. I understand what all of that means. I'm kidding. I don't. It also adds support for uh, improving the Mackie controls. Uh, as it adds support for being able to loop recordings because it, it used to not like there was some uh, bugs in the previous versions. Now the latest version has it makes loop recording work again, and it also correctly computes uh, MIDI capture duration when doing loop recording. So that's nice. And they've done a lot of other stuff, including well, really just tons. If you want to learn more about the latest release of Ardor 6.9, you'll find links in the show notes. Next on the show, and the last topic for today, is ExpressVPN. You may be wondering, is this an ad? It's not. Last year, ExpressVPN announced Lightweight, their new virtual private network protocol designed for speed, stability, and reliability. I know you're thinking, that's nice, Michael, but we have OpenVPN and WireGuard, so why should we care? Great question I forced myself to answer. You see, ExpressVPN announced this week that they are now making the protocol open source. ExpressVPN says Lightweight was engineered to provide very fast connection and setup times with privacy and security at the forefront of their design decisions. They've chosen to release it under the GPL v2, and it's not just open source code dump either. ExpressVPN will begin accepting contributions from the community, including starting a bug bounty, which is always great to see, because it shows that they are putting in you know, money behind the efforts. And in the process of making it open source, ExpressVPN also had a third-party security audit of the code carried out by the well-known security firm Cure53. Now, it is worth noting that there is, well, if you're looking to contribute, there is a CLA involved. I haven't looked at what all is in, it entails, but there is one for, you know, just letting you know. Now, I don't know how popular this will be because, well, we already have a lot of hype around WireGuard and we have the tried and true OpenVPN for many years. And it is, but it is very cool to see a company like this embracing open source. And I hope there's at least some interest because they say, you know, competition is good. For those interested in learning more about Lightweight or their open source efforts, links in the show notes. No, Michael, you say it. Say it. Okay, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. But that has nothing to do with the topic, Ryan. It's a good thing. <laughs> okay, fine. Links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. 
If you'd like to support the show, we have multiple ways to do that. You can go to use PayPal, Patreon sponsors, or many others by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. And if you become a patron, you can join me during the live stream when I'm doing them live, and, and also in the recording stadium to discuss stuff between topics and just hang out every week after the show. And also, if you want to order the Linux Everywhere t-shirt that is available at thedealinstore.com, you can check that out, as well as the This Week in Linux shirt and many more things like mugs, hats, hoodies, stickers, aprons, uh, backpacks, all sorts of stuff at dealinstore.com. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux Network. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday, most Saturdays, at 1 p.m. Eastern Time or 1700 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each and most every week by going to dlnlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell. I'm Ryan. <laughs> with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next time for another episode of your weekly source for Linux Good News. Good news. <laughs> you like... You photobombed the show. <laughs> <laughs>